literally the words out of my mouth, just a spontaneous reaction was, oh, wow. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number five, and today's guest is Chip Berg. Chip is the president and CEO of Levi Strauss & Company. He's also on the company's board of directors. Levi's is one of the world's largest brand name apparel companies and a global leader in jeanswear. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at hippodirect.com to bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and today I have a very special guest. Chip Berg is the president and CEO of Levi Strauss & Company. You know it simply as Levi's. Uh, Chip is also on the company's board of directors. Welcome, Chip. Good morning. How are you doing, Mark? Great. Great to be here. All right. Thanks very much for, uh, for taking time. I'm going to jump right in because uh, we have uh, limited time. We're recording on, on February 27th, uh, 2020. And other than the upcoming presidential election, uh, I want to get right to the big story, and that's the coronavirus. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you guys are a worldwide company. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how it's impacting uh, your employees, your factories, um, you know, obviously without giving things away that are not yet public. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a very unfortunate situation. Let's start with that. You know, the virus uh, really began to impact us and our business in China about a week before Chinese New Year. So back in roughly the middle of January. And when the crisis really erupted in, in China and became apparent, you know, our, our top priority was to make sure that our, our employees, our people were safe and taken care of, and, and then also working with our partners. We have about 500 stores in China. Uh, we have a number of franchise partners as well. You know, the situation is very fluid and um, it's, it's very hard to look into a crystal ball to see how this is going to play out. I was literally just reading an update from the C- CDC this morning on this. It has had an impact on our business in China, not surprisingly. Uh, at our fourth quarter earnings call, which was now about a month ago, we indicated that we had at that point in time already closed about half of our doors in China temporarily because of the virus. Some of that was mandated by our landlords or the government, and some of that was just to take um, precaution. You know, uh, as a sidebar, the other really unfortunate thing about this is we had just opened our largest door in China, and really, we we call it a beacon store. It was kind of a look to the future of what our stores in China are going to be in Wuhan. I was in Wuhan myself in Mm. in late uh, October. So it's, it's a very unfortunate situation. Of course, now um, the, the virus seems to be spreading and uh, still not under control really anywhere, although it does seem to be, its impact seems to be slowing in China. But 
you know, our business has not really come back. From a supply chain standpoint, we're a big global company. We are very diversified from a supply chain standpoint. You know, obviously we do produce product in China with third-party vendors, but it's not a, a sizable part of our overall supply base. And in fact, most of what we produce in China is for China today. So uh, our U.S. business, uh, in part because of the, all the tariff shenanigans over the last two years, our U.S. business today, we only import, we import less than 1% of the product that we sell in the U.S. from China. So um, we don't think from a supply chain standpoint, this is going to have any kind of meaningful impact to our business at all. So you know, but the situation is still fluid. It, it, it's going to have an impact on our business in China. Beyond China, you know, definitely tourism is down. You know, Chinese New Year is a big time when Chinese folks travel around the world. Macy's just had their earnings call the other day. They talked about how tourist traffic has been down. So, you know, the full extent of what kind of impact it's going to have is still too early to be told, but it is unfortunate and hopefully the situation will come under control quickly and, and life will return to normal quickly but I'm not really sure that's going to be the way it plays out I like to say plan for the worst and hope for the best and right now we're making contingency plans assuming more of a worst case scenario yeah I've been hearing a lot about that so thank you for for that so let's take a step back um, let's talk a little bit about uh, for those that may not know uh, who you are and, and your background. Give me a, a, a quick and dirty view of the story of Chip, where'd you grow up, family, um, and, and perhaps a little bit about you know, how your upbringing might have lent itself to you know, the, the career that you've developed for yourself. Yeah, I, um, I'm not sure if my upbringing prepared me for my career, to be honest with you, and I say that with a big smile on my face. Um, I grew up in, in, in New York, uh, about an hour outside of New York City. If you've ever watched the TV show Mad Men, that was my life growing up. My dad worked at NBC, you know, kind of a very typical suburban middle-class uh, upbringing back in the day. I went to Lafayette College. That's the common bond between you and me. Uh, when I decided to go to school or when I went to school, I decided to apply for an ROTC scholarship to help pay for my education. And uh, I got an ROTC scholarship. So Lafayette College was an amazing experience. It, it also kind of played a role in preparing me for uh, my life ahead, I guess, at that point in time. And then some of my best friends are still, you know, fraternity brothers from back in the day. And that was a long, long time ago now. Um, when I graduated from Lafayette, I, I graduated with a regular Army commission, which is the same commission that West Point graduates get, and uh, went into the military, which, which meant that I could make the military my career if that's what I chose to do, as opposed to a reserve officer commission. And uh, went into the military, you know, I graduated from Lafayette in 1979, so it was still the Cold War. I was an uh, air defense officer, so spent the first couple of months after graduation in El Paso, Texas, and then uh, was assigned to the 3rd Armored uh, Division in West Germany at the time. I was a short-range air defense platoon leader when I first got there as a second lieutenant. I spent about four years in Europe and Germany, uh, West Germany, uh, during the Cold War, and the military played a really big role in how I lead. I learned so much about leadership and about myself 
when I was in the army and we can come back and talk about that. And uh, it, it, it definitely influenced how I lead and who I am as a leader. Um, and when I, I did, you know, I was kind of faced with a choice at, at that point in time when it was time for me to come back from Europe to either go back to advanced officer training. At that point in time, I was a captain in the army or leave. And uh, I decided I decided I didn't want to make the military my career. Part of it was I had a young family. I had a three-month-old when I left the Army, my, my oldest son, who is now 37. So that tells you how long ago this was. And, uh, you know, so I had a young family and the idea of moving around every couple of years for the rest of my career, you know, wasn't something that was super appealing to me. And, uh, but more than that, I... I really wanted to be in a place where if I did a good job, my career progression would be faster than the rest of the pack, so to speak. And, you know, really wanted to work in a place that was a true meritocracy. And the military is, is obviously very big and pretty bureaucratic. And I got promoted to captain at about the same time, everybody in my class got promoted to captain. And, you know, the separation of the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, in the, in the army really doesn't happen until, you know, your 14th or 15th year of service. Um, you know, I would have gotten promoted to major at about the same time as everybody else in my class. So I wanted to work for meritocracy. So I made the decision to leave. And, um, you know, very fortuitously, I think I wound up joining Procter & Gamble. I had a number of different options. I worked with a a firm that specialized in placing junior military officers. And I wound up at Procter & Gamble in brand management, which at the time they kind of pitched that as, you know, as a brand manager, you're a mini general manager. You're running a business in a market responsible for all aspects of the business, the innovation program, the marketing, fundamentally a marketing kind of role. But when I joined P&G, um, I was the only guy in my class in my division, if you will, that didn't go to a, didn't go to a business school. Um, and, uh, I entered right out of, right out of, uh, the military. My undergraduate degree was in international affairs. I, I had really no real business experience to speak of. And so everything I've learned about business, I learned at P and G. And when I joined, I thought if I could make it to brand manager where, you know, the normal time frame for that is about, four years or so at P&G. If I could just make it to brand manager, you know, I will consider my life a success. And, <laughs> um, and as it turned out, I wound up staying at P&G for 28 years. I technically retired when I left. And, you know, my last assignment at P&G was uh, integrating the Gillette business, which the company had acquired, and then running that, you know, iconic brand and business. Uh, for about six years on a global basis. Um, so I had a number of amazing experiences at P&G. Um, I like to say I am who I am today as a result of all the different assignments and experiences I've had in my life, including, including where I went to college, you know, where I grew up, where I went to college, you know, and all the different assignments I had at P&G. I've worked on big brands, small brands, growing brands, declining brands, number one brands, number three brands, global brands, local brands, you know, I've, I've, I've really, I've worked on so many different businesses. And I, I, I also launched uh, a couple of brands, you know, the probably the most notable one was, I was the general manager running the business when we launched Swiffer, which today is over a billion dollar brand. 
on a global basis. And we launched that back in, gosh, 1995 or something. It's the most successful new brand that P&G has launched in the last two decades, I think. My, my family thanks you. Specifically, my wife thanks you. Uh, I told her that uh, you were part of that uh, Swiffer evo- uh, revolution or evolution. And she was like, yeah, that's the greatest thing. So yeah, I, we, we joking when we, when we uh, picked the brand name, uh, which was a really interesting experience. Um, you know, we had a naming agency that, or a branding agency that was helping us kind of come up with the brand name. And they had about 50 brand names on eight and a half by 11 cards flipped upside down on uh, on a big boardroom table. And we kind of went around and kind of unflipped each card and kind of, do we like that? Do we not like that? And in the end of the day, it came down to two brand names, Swiffer and Swiffit. And, um, you know, I said, I really like Swiffer. And I said, we'll know we're onto something when somebody sends us a picture of their, of their white fluffy dog or cat that's <laughs> named Swiffer. And, and literally about six months after we launched the brand into a test market, somebody did send in a picture of their little puppy, white fluffy puppy dog named Swiffer. So, uh, but yeah, that was, that was an incredible experience. And, and in fact, I was the general manager of the hard surface cleaners business at the time, which was Comet, Spick and Span, Less Toil, Mr. Clean, you know, a bunch of kind of old, old brands that, and the category was in decline and not really making much money. And we put a new strategy in place, really listened to the consumer. The consumer dynamic had changed so, so much since those brands were launched back in the 50s. And uh, out of all that consumer work came this insight that, you know, consumers want cleaning to be quick, efficient, and, you know, kind of easy to, to be done. And, uh, and out of that insight came this this brand called Swiffer, which, you know, turned into a, a huge global success. So anyway, uh, you know, so Proctor played, you know, a very, very instrumental role in kind of making me who I am and as a business person and as a leader. And, you know, I still, I bleed blue, you know, cause P and G is blue and denim is blue. So, you know, my blood, what's coursing through my veins is blue right now. That's funny. That's funny. As I was, you know, thinking about the the Swiffer, um, I think we could have that commonality that we have not only at Lafayette College, but also uh, in our fraternity. Um, I think that fraternity house bar room probably could have used a little bit of Swiffer action. Yeah, I think Swiffer wet yet more than more than (laughs) Swiffer. That's for sure. Yeah. So. You know, so obviously great career at, at P&G, working on, on lots of great brands. Talk a little bit about, you know, so much advertising uh, goes in. We'll talk about the advertising landscape, but so much advertising goes into these consumer brands, even for brands that are so well known. Yep. You know, how, how do you rationalize the, you know, continuously pouring in multiple millions of dollars in brands that seemingly everybody knows? Yeah. Um, you know, again, I go back to, marketing has changed so much in the 40, almost 45 years that I've been doing this. Um, you know, when I started and when I was a brand manager in the early days, you know, in running brands here in the U S it was three TV channels and, uh, and people magazine kind of thing. That was your media plan. But, you know, the whole role of advertising is to, uh, you know, build a relationship between the brand and a consumer. And even if you have very high awareness that doesn't necessarily drive a consumer to the store to, to buy your brand. And, um, you know, there've been 
endless numbers of studies around the importance of media continuity and and the consumer has changed their consumer and how they how they digest media how they learn about brands the amount of information the amount of transparency today is so much different than it was back in the you know back in the early days of my career formative days of my career marketing as a science marketing as an art has changed in so many different ways but you know the importance of kind of having that direct to consumer experience and and building that connection that relationship with a consumer cannot be understated and 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 the world has changed so much i mean you know back in the day you put a television ad on on television and and you just pounded away with lots of tv advertising and it, and it was very much a model to just kind of, you know, pound the consumer over the head, so to speak, with your message. Today, it's totally different. You, you need to engage the consumer. You want to build that relationship with consumer because you can. You can build that one-to-one relationship with the consumer. And consumers can, you know, tell the brands that are authentic versus the brands that aren't. And making that pivot and and really figuring out how to connect with the consumer has radically changed, you know, what marketers do today versus, you know, the early days of my career. In fact, it's really instructive. You can take a look at, you know, the business that I last ran when I was at P&G was Gillette. And, you know, that business model is an iconic well-studied Harvard Business School case studies on the Gillette business model. Give away the razor, sell the blades, you know, and that that was basically what we did. In fact, one of the biggest marketing things that, you know, I used to say it was the first dollar we would spend and the last dollar we would cut was sampling razors to 18-year-olds. Because once you got a guy shaving with Gillette, you basically owned them for life. But what had happened over the years well, you know, blades got more and more expensive. Customers like Walgreens and CVS and, and others, Walmart, started locking the blades up. So if you're a guy to shop to begin with and you go to the, you know, to your Walgreens and your blades are locked up, that's, that's a problem. That's a hassle. And about a year after I left, a brand by the name of Dollar Shave Club came in and, and completely disrupted the model. And created a direct, you know, sold on the internet, direct to consumer business model with blades that technically aren't as good as Gillette's. And I know that, that technically aren't as good, but they're less expensive because they're not sharing the profit with, with a middleman. And, and they developed this direct relationship with the consumer. It totally disrupted this massive business that Gillette had built for over a century. When I left the Gillette business, we had a 72% market share. P&G wrote off $8 billion of that acquisition within the last six months or so. And a lot of it is because their market share has gone from the 70s down to the 50s in the, in the US here because of this disruption. So you know, staying connected to the consumer, building that consumer relationship is such an important thing that, that marketers have to do. And, it, and if you're not innovating in how you're connecting with the consumer and you rely on kind of an old model, you're going to get killed. Yeah. And so, and so speaking of, of 
companies that are, are well known and, and may not need you know tons of advertising. But probably that's that's not the case. You know, we all take some risks. You, you perhaps uh, uh, you left P and G. Uh, you're retired, and your next uh, role is is at Levi's. So, how did you come to go to Levi's? What did you find when you got there? Um, and then we uh, have some other thoughts uh, about you know the, the business today. So I was uh, kind of young or mid fifties. I was like 53, 54 years old. And um, Bob McDonald was the CEO at P&G. Bob is just a couple of years older than me. And uh, so it, I, I probably was not going to become CEO at P&G. And it's not like I had a burning desire to be CEO, but you know, I, I got a phone call from a headhunter saying, I think I've got an opportunity that might be really interesting to you. And, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes and the little bubble over my head was, you know, I've heard this one before. Right. And I was actually in Beijing, China. I remember, I, I mean, I remember looking at the carpet while I was talking to her. I could tell you what the carpet looked like. <laughs> and she said, what do you think about Levi Strauss? And literally the words out of my mouth, just a spontaneous reaction was, oh, wow. Positively or negatively? Positively. Right. Um, you know, because I, I grew up wearing Levi's. You know, Levi's was one of those brands that I had this emotional connection to. Um, you know, I, I think of Levi's as one of the most iconic brands in the world. And if you had put a gun to my head at that moment, I would have guessed that the, that the brand and the company were around $10 billion in sales. I mean, I you know, travel the world. I see Levi's everywhere. saw people wearing Levi's, saw Levi's stores. And um, I started to do some homework on the company, just you know, kind of surfing the internet, trying to get as much information about the company as I could before my first meeting, which was dinner with the chairman of the board at the time. And I was shocked to see what had happened to the company. The company peaked in the mid 90s, 96, at $7.1 billion in sales. And over the next five or so years, it went from $7 billion in sales to four. And then it kind of bumped along between four and 4.2, $4.3 billion over the next decade, you know, kind of one year the revenues would go up, but the profits would go down. The next year the profits would go up, but the revenues would go down and just not making any real progress. And so, you know, I'm kind of, I'm probably in my last assignment at P&G. I don't think I'm gonna become CEO. I'm running P&G's second biggest and most profitable business on a global basis. I'm 53, 54 years old. And you, you get to that stage in your career, in your life, and you start thinking about what's my legacy going to be. And, you know, I kind of viewed this opportunity at Levi's, you know, here, here was one of America's oldest companies. Um, at the time, you know, the company had been around for about 160 years. And uh, one of the most iconic, greatest brands in the world and it had, it had faltered. And so I kind of saw this as an opportunity to really make a difference. You know, if we could turn the brand around, the brand was about 85% of the total company's revenue. If we could turn the Levi's brand around back to the way I remembered it when I was a kid, then, you know, we could turn the company around. And, you know, as I was going through the process, I was also, you know, kind of talking to my friends, talking to my kids, about the brand. And, you know, 
I'd ask friends, you know, what do you think about Levi's? And they would go, God, I, you know, I grew up on Levi's. You know, I, I still remember my very first date, I was wearing Levi's or <laughs> my first kiss or whatever. And then they would say, but I don't think I, I don't even know if I own any Levi's right now. I don't think I've bought a pair of Levi's in, in 20 years. And my, my, my older boys who, you know, today they're 32 and 37. Back then they were kind of in their early 20s, early mid 20s. You know, they, they never owned a pair of Levi's when they were teenagers. You know, they grew up wearing Gap or American Eagle or Seven for All Mankind, you know, lots of other usual suspects, but not Levi's. It, it was not even in their consideration set. So, um, and I contrast that to, you know, some of my strongest memories I was wearing Levi's. So I really did see this as an opportunity to make a difference, to come in and take on a big challenge, you know, and the, the success rate of people coming from outside the apparel slash apparel retail industry into apparel and, and being successful is, is not very, there's not a very strong track record of people who have done this. And so I knew it was risky, but I, I kind of felt I'm only going to do one more thing in my career, do something that's meaningful. And I, and I talk about it as my noble cause to make this company great again. And unfortunately, somebody else stole that line. So I try not <laughs> to use it anymore. But, you know, the opportunity to turn the business around, make a difference here, build a team, build a culture was really something that was too good to pass up. And, you know, aside from that, it's San Francisco. I'm sitting here in my office looking out on the bay on a beautiful sunny day here in San Francisco. It's, it's, and it's been an amazing ride. It's been eight and a half years and it's been an incredible ride. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could be the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. There's so many things you can talk about with your business. Obviously, product is is first and foremost. But let's take a, a step aside for a second and, and talk about corporate purpose. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've been quoted as saying corporations need to take a stand on social issues to be viewed as authentic by younger generations, but they need to be careful and not opportunistic. So, w- what does that mean in practice, and and how do you decide which issues to take a stand for? Um, you know, you've notably come out you know, around gun control, and have some programs around that. Yeah, well, I I would rephrase that a little bit. We've come out trying to end gun violence and the gun okay. violence epidemic in this country, mm-hmm. but. No, you know, it's, it's very much in vogue now. You know, the business roundtable has just kind of recrafted what the purpose of a corporation is to include kind of stakeholder engagement and, and really, you know, making a positive impact in society. But for us at Levi Strauss, this goes all the way back to our founder. And I, and I, you know, it's kind of interesting. I've worked for three institutions my entire career. I've worked for the military, you know, and the U.S. Army's been around for about 250 years. I've worked for Procter & Gamble. I think they're coming up on about 190 years right now. I've kind of lost count. And Levi Strauss, 167 years. And the common thread between all three of them is very, very strong values. 
And, you know, you can summarize the values of all three around do the right thing. And that is a big part of what attracted me here. But the other thing is, this goes back to our founder. The very first year he made a profit, he donated part of the profits to an orphanage in San Francisco to, to make a difference in the local community. And I really do believe that business has a bigger role to play in the world than just make a buck and return it to shareholders. And I, I say that now as a publicly traded company. I really do believe that we have an obligation, a responsibility, call it what you want, to do the right thing for our stakeholders. And our stakeholders go beyond our shareholders. It's our employees, it's our retirees, it's the communities where we live and work, it's our suppliers, it's our partners, it's our vendors. And to really be engaged in making a positive impact in the world. So this, this company has a long history uh, of doing these things. Uh, you know, you can go back 10 years before the law of the land, when we had factories around the country here in the US, we desegregated those factories 10 years before it became federal law. You go back to the late 80s and early 90s when the AIDS epidemic hit here in San Francisco, our CEO at the time stood in the lobby handing out pamphlets about the AIDS epidemic and condoms. And we were one of the very first companies to provide healthcare benefits to same-sex partners. We've always been a champion for LGBTQ rights long before that became popular. When the Boy Scouts banned gay troop leaders, we pulled funding of the Boy Scouts. And over the ensuing week, we got 130,000 letters and emails saying, I'm done with Levi's. I'm never buying Levi's again. And, and now you look back with the benefit of history and you go, this company was clearly on the right side of the issue. And so, you know, the, the company does have this long track record. So it's not about me as a leader. It's about the, the office and the responsibility, the platform that we have as a company, the responsibility of the CEO to have thick skin and not be afraid to take stands on important issues of the day. When the, when the president in the very first week he was, uh, after he was inaugurated, when he put the immigration ban in place, mm -hmm. we rallied our nonprofit foundation. We came together as a foundation board and we said, we've got to make a difference on this. And we took a stand that, you know, this is almost a basic human right. And, and this, country, you know, is built by immigrants. And in fact, Levi Strauss himself was an immigrant. And, you know, you look at the economic impact that immigrants have had on the economic engine of this country, you know, to put immigration bans in place, that was a really bad thing. And, um, and you know, when he attacked the dreamers and kind of went after them. So we, we were very, very quick to mobilize not just our voice, but some money from our foundation and put a million dollars to work largely here in the Bay Area to protect, you know, communities that were being threatened. And it's just part of who we are. So, you know, our, our latest thing right now, and I've got to, I've got to give it a plug and weave it in here somehow is um, back in 2018, during the midterm elections, we partnered with Patagonia to try to encourage companies to give employees time off to vote on election mm. day. And we got about, we got over 300 companies to join us during the midterms. Um, and, and the reason is pretty straightforward. Number one, democracy only works if people go out and vote. And the last presidential election in 2016. People stayed home in droves. Yeah, le or less than half of the people who were eligible to vote actually turned up to vote. Less than half. 
And um, so we partnered with Patagonia and in the 2018 midterms, we had the largest voter turnout since the 1960s. So we're doing it again for the 2020 elections. We're partnering with Patagonia. We're trying to get other companies to step up and give their employees time off to vote. We're one of the few democracies in the world where election day falls on a work day. It's usually either a national holiday or on a weekend in most other democracies where people vote. Here in the US, it's a work day. And, you know, and it can be very, very challenging. You know, if you've got to vote before you go to work or right after work, those are the two most crowded times when the polls are open. And a lot of people just avoid it. They show up at the polling place and the line is out the door and around the block and they say, forget it. And so we, uh, you know, we initiated this effort and, um, you know, we're, we're at it again. We're already over 350 companies. We've got some really big companies like Walmart and Target and PNC Bank. Uh, Delta Airlines, I think, has joined. I mean, so we've got a number of large companies joining us on this. And, and, and we're not mandating how they do it. Um, it's up to them how they want to execute it. And this is, this is completely nonpartisan. This is not about rallying the left or rallying the right to go out and vote. This is just about making sure that, number one, people are registered if they can be registered to vote. And number two, that they vote on election day. And, um, you know, we're really committed to make a difference here. And so- That's wonderful. That's great. Because again, you know, democracy just doesn't work if people don't show up and vote. Yeah. So, but we've got this long track record of kind of weighing in on, on big and important and meaty topics. Um, sustainability is really big for us. We did kind of enter into this ending gun violence thing after the Parkland shooting, but we had already kind of waded into the issue by requesting gun owners not to bring weapons into our store for the safety of our employees and other consumers in the store. We literally had a gun go off. You know, a consumer brought a, a, a weapon into our store and the gun accidentally discharged. You know, and it, it could have it killed somebody. It could have killed one of my employees. It could have killed a, a, a consumer, a shopper in our store or their child. And fortunately that did not happen, but uh, you know, we three or four years ago now, you know, ask, respectfully ask gun owners to not bring a weapon into our store out of the concern of safety. So we were kind of already into this, this topic and this debate. And then after the Parkland shooting, you know, this is one of the biggest issues on for, for young people today. One of the biggest concerns they've got is gun violence. And, and uh, you know, my, my daughter goes to school here in San Francisco. They practice lockdown drills more than they do earthquake drills. Hmm. So it, it, is, um, it is a big issue. <clears throat> there are things that can be done at the federal level to reduce the, the risk of gun violence and, uh, and, and make a difference. You know, simple things like national federal background checks and red flag laws, those two things alone can save lives. And, and that's kind of what we're pressing for. You remember, I, I was an army officer. I swore an oath to defend the constitution. And, and I believe in, in people's rights and freedom, including the right to bear arms. And however, that does not mean an unmitigated right. And, and we do have to, you know, the, the places that are most threatened today are, are places that should be safe, that should be sacred. Schools, Schools yeah. where our kids are, churches, you know, places of wor worship, movie theaters, you know, these are where these tragic, tragic mass violence things are happening. And, 
And so something needs to be done about it. We're trying to make a difference there. Oh, that's great. Well. That, that's great. I served on the school board in uh, the town of Westfield, New Jersey for six and a half years. And I know um, every day that I woke up while I was on the board and, you know, my kids had gone through those schools, you know, concerned about you know, whether we were doing enough from a security perspective. So, you know, we thank you for all the good work that you guys are doing. Let's switch gears to innovation. You know, innovation mm-hmm. takes many forms and in, in your case, um, some of it has to do with, you know, what you're doing with corporate purpose, but it comes in the form of technology and marketing and design and fabrication. Um, I know you've got an innovation center. Would you care to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, um, again, this goes all the way back to the very beginning of this company. Um, this company started with an innovation, you know, the patented riveted blue gene, and we created the category and have now created this almost $6 billion business out of it. So innovation is our lifeblood. It is kind of how we started as a company. And I'm a big believer in innovation. You know, again, that's been informed by my entire career. If you don't innovate, I think you die. And and innovation comes in, in all forms. I talked about marketing innovation earlier. It's like, you know, if everybody kept marketing the way marketing was 40 years ago, you'll get disrupted, just like what happened to the Gillette business. So innovation happens everywhere. It's really important. It is, it is our lifeblood as a company. And if you don't innovate, by the way, I mean, the flip side is if you don't innovate, what happens is categories commoditize or somebody out innovates you. You know, one of those two things happens. And when categories commoditize, price becomes the only differentiator, margin goes out of the business and, and you know, the business is no longer any fun because everybody's the same. Anyway, so when I joined the company, we had a small innovation center. It was over in Chorlu, Turkey, uh, where we also owned a factory at the time. So it was there more out of convenience than anything else. Most of our designers and a lot of our merchants are here in San Francisco. And so we were spending a fortune sending people back and forth to Chorlu, Turkey, which, by the way, you had to fly to Istanbul, then, you know, do like a two hour drive to get to Chorlu. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And innovation in this in this business is it's very, as you know, it's very tactile. It is very iterative. You know, you need to feel the feel the fabric. You need to see how it actually looks on an in, on a person's body. And um, and you're constantly iterating on it, evolving it, you know, as, as you kind of work it. And it's a very iterative, very tactile process. And so with our designers being here and the innovation center over there, it just made no sense. And when I joined the company, we were not financially in very good shape and um, we had a lot of debt and, you know, the convenient thing to do would have been to leave the innovation center over there. And I made the decision even though on paper the net present value of it was negative, I just didn't believe the numbers. Um, I made the decision in part to send a signal about the importance of innovation to build an innovation center a couple of blocks away from our headquarters here. And I'm actually looking at the flag that's on the roof of the innovation center right now from where I'm sitting. Um, so it's just a couple of blocks away. And it is it has been part of the transformation of this company. Um, you know. In our innovation center, we have we relaunched our women's business back in the middle of 2015 around new fabrications. And I can come back and talk about that. We're using lasers to finish jeans now, which used to be a very manual, very chemical intensive process. And, um, you know, 
highly finished pair of jeans used to take 20 minutes of sanding and scrubbing and, you know, using little scalpels and tools to produce a pair of highly distressed pair of jeans. And now we can do all of that in 60 to 90 seconds on a laser with no chemicals or very, very few chemicals. So we, we've been innovating in a, lot, in a number of areas. Um, one of the things that we decided to do, though, was to use sustainability as a constraint for our innovation. I mean, I, I like to say an unconstrained innovation program is just going to wander and you're going to waste a lot of money. Innovation really should be focused on solving a problem, you know, addressing a tackleable problem, maybe even unattackable, but, you know, trying to address a fundamental issue or problem that either a consumer has or that we might have in our supply chain or that, you know, is an opportunity to positively impact the business. And sustainability is a big thing for us. It is a huge issue for the industry. It is now becoming more and more important. And I think it's going to become a, a differentiator as the Gen Z consumer enters the workforce. I really do believe patterns of consumption are gonna change over the next 10 to 20 years. People are gonna buy less and buy better. Um, and sustainability is gonna play a key role in how consumers make their choices about the brands and the companies that they're gonna support and buy. And so we're very focused on, on driving innovation from a sustainability standpoint and that includes fibers, uh, you know, so we've launched products with, with hemp in them. You know, hemp is, is a much more sustainable fiber than cotton. Uh, you can grow three times the amount per acre with a lot less water than cotton. But the problem with hemp has historically been it's like burlap when you turn it into a fiber. It's very rough, very coarse. We've worked with a supplier to create what's called cottonized hemp that has the same soft hand feel as cotton and we're weaving it in with cotton and have launched an entire line of cottonized hemp product that is way more sustainable than 100% cotton. You know, so we're, we're really um, very focused on better meeting consumer needs, tackling some of the toughest challenges in the supply chain and doing it at all through our innovation program. The, the laser technology is one that is really, really exciting though, because, and, I, and I've been saying now for the last couple of years that digital disruption is gonna change everything. You see how it's changing the way consumers consume media. You see how it's changing the way people shop right now. So many people are shopping online. They used to do it from their desktop. They're now doing it from their phone. You know, they, they could be standing in a Levi's store hmm. ordering Levi's online. Oh, I, I, I've seen that in stores that I've worked for. Yeah. Um, you know. So, you know, so, um, but, but digital disruption is coming. I think this FLX technology, which is the laser technology, we're now able to customize a pair of jeans that, that a consumer wants. I mean, they can go to our website, Levi.com, and design the finish that they want with the level of destruction that they want with the pattern that they want. And we can produce it N equals one for that one consumer and send it to their house. And um, it, it really is going to transform. I think it's fundamentally going to transform our business over time. So we're very focused on how to, how to drive all these things and continue to innovate. I, I think, 10 years from now, you know, I was famously quoted from something I said in a, on a panel a couple of, well, about two months ago, I guess, 
that, you know, 10 years from now, I think sizes, go, yeah. sizes go out the window. Right. I mean, you're going to be able to body scan yourself on your iPhone. It's going to be 99.8% accurate. You're going to be able to upload your body scan. You're going to be able to pick out your fabric, pick out your finish, pick out the sundries that you want, and we're going to customize it for you. I saw that comment that you made, and, and I had made myself a note here. Back in 2000, when I was at Brooks Brothers, we had a body scanner in our Madison, Madison Avenue flagship store. You walked into you know what was a room, it was 10 by 10. You had to get undressed and put on black uh, workout shorts almost. And you, know, you went yep. in and, and you had you know, all the scan and we were making you know, shirts. So it was probably too early, but you know, I, I think that that's clearly uh, coming our way. Yeah, there, there are a number of technologies out there. There's a company called Zozo in Japan that you put on this suit and take photos from a couple of different angles and it calculates your body, your body scan. There are a number, I mean, it's, it's getting very, very close. It's, it's still not perfect, but when it gets to a place where it's almost perfect, I think it's going to be highly disruptive. And so we're messing around with that. The other thing is, think about all the data that gets generated. And, and we're with machine learning and artificial intelligence, we added a new senior person to my executive team who reports directly to me, Katya Walsh, who is responsible for AI in this company. We have tons of data that we do very, very little with. And now we're going to start really mining that data and the opportunities to better assort our stores, manage our inventory, manage our forecasting. The opportunities are so huge, leveraging machine learning going down the road. And so, you know, we're, we're all over that. But I think companies that don't embrace this fourth industrial revolution, they're going to be left in the dust. Agreed. All right, let's, uh, we're going to wrap up with Chip here. Chip, uh, I'm going to just ask you to humor me. At the end of these uh, interviews, I asked uh, each of the, the guests a, a few questions, actually six or seven of them, just uh, lightning quick answers, if you don't mind. Uh, you good for that? I'm good for that. Go for it. All right. hope I don't have a long, lengthy pause. Uh, a brand that you admire or that inspires you? Patagonia. Okay. Favorite app on your phone? Uh, New York Times. Last website, other than Amazon and, of course, Levi's, that you've shopped from? Nike.com. Actually, swoosh.com because my <laughs> son works there. Oh, okay, cool. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were? Ooh, uh, I would say speaking Mandarin. My wife is Chinese, and my daughter is also basically fluent in Mandarin, and I am horrible at it. So when the two of them are speaking in Mandarin, I know they're talking about me. <laughs> um, this one should be easy. A charitable organization that you're passionate about. Um, we have an employee uh, foundation that gives to employees who are in need called the Red Tab Foundation. It is my number one charitable donation. I just donated a quarter of a million dollars to it two weeks ago at our leadership summit. And, uh, and it's, it's run by employees and it, it helps employees out who hit some kind of financial crisis. And you got to remember a lot of our employees around the world are working in our stores and it really has played an important role in helping folks out when they, you know, get hit by some kind of unexpected crisis. 
Oh, that's great. Congratulations uh, for that uh, effort. So we're, we're at the end of time. You've been so gracious um, to spend so much time and talk about your business. I had five more pages of, of things I could have asked you about because I find your business and, and your career so interesting. We were at, at Lafayette, but I was a freshman. You were a senior. We had uh, little or no interaction, but uh, same fraternity house. So I'm, I'm sure we have a lot of the, the same very strong memories about being there. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, best of luck and success. And uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Mark. It was great. Great to talk with you. All right. Same here. Take care, Chip. Well, that's it. Today's game ball goes to Chip Berg for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, business has a larger role in society than to just make a buck. Companies should be engaged with their consumers, employees, and business partners and strive to make a positive impact. Individually, as you think about your roles in a company and your own lives, what are you doing to positively impact society? Chip spoke about doing the right thing and having strong values as we conduct our business. Number two, the role of advertising is to build a relationship between a brand and consumers. And even if you have high awareness, that alone will not drive people to shop. Advertising has changed tremendously over the years and will continue to change. Are you keeping up with the way consumers want to be engaged? Number three, innovation is critical. If you do not innovate, you'll die as your products become more commoditized and price becomes the only differentiator. Invest in technology and marketing innovation to stay ahead of the competition. And for today's show, a bonus takeaway. Number four, plan for the worst and hope for the best. Business preparation is critical and having plans in place for all contingencies is crucial. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. <laughs>